Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. I'm your host, Alex Yantafi, and today I am thrilled to be here with Chrissy Shabasut, who is the author of Heaven Come Down, a memoir of being a transgender disciple. And Chrissy facilitates the online community Transgender Church and is well known as an advocate for transgender awareness in the church. She and her wife Pam have lived, worked and witnessed in Oxford in the UK for more than 30 years. So welcome, Chrissy. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Alrighty. So I want to talk about your book and start from there. I think one of the things that really makes it stand out from other memoir of trans people is the fact that you really focus on your spiritual journey in this book. It's not just a journey to yourself in terms of transition, but it's really a journey to yourself as a spiritual being, as a person of faith, I I would say, uh, from what I've read in the book. Is that what you wanted to put across in in your memoir, or just tell me a little bit about kind of how this book came about. I think one of the awarenesses I have is that as trans, um, being different and being other from an early age, it involves quite a lot of suffering. And I think any suffering causes us to question uh, more deeply, who am I? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? And so I think this thirst to understand ourselves, uh, who we are, and make sense of it when there's nothing around us to to give us any information. There's no, I didn't have any reference points to understand being trans till much later in life. But I think also there there is some kind of spiritual hunger and thirst that being trans almost accentuated, almost um, heightened. So yes, it, it it was a spiritual journey from early, a very early age. I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think that definitely comes across in your memoir, and I definitely resonate with that. Being trans, almost kind of enhances or highlights this kind of hunger for kind of spirituality and meaning. And you found meaning uh, in your faith, but also you found kind of meaning in your relationship. And I do want to talk about that in in a moment. But you also found kind of some meaning and um, also a form of maybe, I would say, escape almost. Maybe it's not what it was for you in cycling. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Because I feel like that features throughout the book, too. When when people ask me what my religion is, I say I'm a cyclist, um, <laughs> and it's my cycling is the only thing I'm really religious about because it's it determines my my days and my weeks and my years, um, my diet, my friends, um, when I go out, when I don't go out, um, and I'm I've always been very disciplined about it. Um, and I've always found it a deeply spiritual practice. 
um, cycling. But in my in the pain of being trans, I think just to say briefly that when my body started to masculinize my my sort of puberty, um, I I was really distressed, um, suffered extreme dysphoria and dysmorphia. Um, and I started attempting suicide. And coincidentally, for my ninth or tenth birthday, my mother and my stepfather gave me uh, a racing bike, a, cycle, a racing cycle, which was a scaled-down um, replica of lightweight, all the best equipment. And uh, all of a sudden, I found that I had somewhere to go, somewhere to escape. Um, and I found riding the bike that I would forget my dysmorphia and my dysphoria. Um, but as I started to um, protect myself um, with a, a masculine persona, um, I started racing, <clears throat> cycle racing, and that um, became highly addictive. I didn't realize why, but the... I, I became very quickly addicted to endorphins, um, the endorphin you got, the rush you got from extreme exercise, the adrenaline of racing and training and riding, uh, and the testosterone that pumps through your body for muscle repair. Um, and so, yeah, my, my cycling became an escape, um, very much so. Uh, it was pain relief. You know, I was self-harming. <laughs> basically yeah yeah i mean it it, it is interesting right because in a way it's like that extreme sport like you said that and the self-harming but it also sounds like it was really helpful in terms of your mental health to have this escape you know and and us trans people it's not unusual that many of us do experience kind of that suicidality even as young children because it feels like we don't understand you know we have no framework often to understand we are what our place is in the world and and I do wonder about kind of how cycling changed as you transitioned in your life and kind of moments where it really did help kind of with managing your mental health but also how your relationship with cycling changed as you became more yourself if that makes sense yeah so initially um I raced to to sort of quite a high national level quite a high standard. I had a serious accident um, when I was about 15, 16, which um, crippled me with pain and meant I just couldn't race competitively. I couldn't put any power down through the pedals because of uh, back pain. Um, and so I, I stopped and uh, fell into, like many sports people do, who, who have a sudden and abrupt end to their careers, ended up al almost immediately on hard drugs. But fast forward um, probably another 10, 15 years uh, and my rehabilitation from drugs, I started running. Um, and then when I could afford it, I bought a, a bike, a racing bike, and I started racing again. And initially it was with the same um, escapism, the same addiction, um, the same reliance on the endorphins and testosterone and adrenaline. Um but when I came out as trans, the or realized I was trans, um, 
one of the first things that I my attention was drawn to was my my addictions, lifelong addiction. And I finally realized, <laughs> I don't know why it took me so long, that I'd been an addict all my life. And I think most people recognize that addiction is rooted in, in pain. Uh, it's pain avoidance. And I realized that I had been hiding from my trans self all my life. I'd been trying to bury and deny who I was. And that was the driver. That was the motivation in the, the subconscious motivation in the addiction. So as I came out as trans, <clears throat> I found that my mojo, my, my motivation for racing and training just evaporated because I had no, I had nothing to prove. I, I, um, I had nothing to hide from anymore. Um, so yeah, and I, I, I've actually stopped racing after you know having raced most of my life and being addicted to it. Um, again, right, I rode to top national level in my mid fifties, um, and all of a sudden there was just no need. I'm happy, you know. I'm out. I'm trans, and I'm no longer hiding. So I don't need the self harm. I don't need the addiction. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Do you find that you still enjoy cycling, though, oh, just it. for the pleasure of it? Yes, because it, <laughs> it is a, it is a, it's such a beautiful pastime. You know, I, I generally ride on country lanes. I don't see cars, people. I just soak in the, the, the countryside and the beauty. Um, and I find it an incredibly um, beautiful, peaceful, healthy, relaxing pastime. I've done it all my life, so I'm hardly not going to stop. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad you found a, a new relationship with cycling because, like you said, it is it does come across kind of the how devoted you are to it in the book. You know, when you said cycling is your religion, I was like, I can believe that that comes across from the pages. And I love what you said about addiction as well. How addiction comes from pain, and I think a lot of trans people do struggle often with addiction issues. And you know, when I think about it um, as a therapist myself, even that addiction is really a disease of intimacy sometimes we call it right I wonder you know how that kind of yearning to understand yourself but the challenge to understand yourself and to be seen by others how you want it to be seen kind of how that kind of maybe played into your addiction patterns or not or um, you know in this kind of search for meaningful connection and relationship as well that is also part of the book and the memoir yeah, I think what is not totally unusual with me, but I think the depth of my denial about being trans was so total um, that I'd, I almost had a split personality and I thought for many years I was schizophrenic. Um, but I think what it was, it was so deeply repressed and suppressed because I'd been shamed. I'd been shamed as a child. Um, about my feminine self and I when I joined the church I was shamed and judged um, and so it, what that caused me to do was to bury it to hide it to deny it uh, and the denial was so total um, that it, it just made me uh, very vulnerable to addiction um, because I wasn't there was no there was no honesty within me, no reality within me. And although I was living 
a supposedly Christian life, um, it was a life of dishonesty because I couldn't be myself. <laughs> I was cut off from myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and in a way, the way that a lot of Christian churches are almost made it impossible for you to be yourself within kind of Christianity as it's often um, as it's often kind of portrayed in some congregations, right? But you did find a way to uh, reconcile being yourself and being a Christian. Do you want to share a little bit more how you did that? Because I think sometimes people feel I need to choose myself and my transidentity or my faith, right? And it's, you know, talking about how can we keep whatever faith is our faith and also be ourselves. I think it's such an important topic of conversation within our community. Yeah. Um, so I I'd probably go around in circles a little bit in terms of my story, but... Um, That's okay. I, I became a drug addict um, at the age of 17, uh, became a drug dealer, uh, ran away to India and ended up being addicted to opium. And I had a total breakdown in, in India. Um, through a, what felt like a miraculous series of events, I ended up um, in the church and the first vicar, the first minister who ever saw me, um, sort of interrogated me in a very compassionate way and concluded that his conclusion was you need an exorcism (laughs) which I was horrified by because I'd never been involved in anything that I thought was a cult or um so yeah so I went through this exorcism early on um and my mindset understood the language that Jesus was talking in the bible the stories in the bible um when Jesus um cast seven spirits out of a woman. And uh, I know this is an issue that divides the Christian community, and it's one that I think non-Christian people um, are horrified by this concept of spirits. But in the book, I try and briefly describe my own understanding, is that when there are violent um, disturbances within the human psyche, I don't think anybody really knows how they are, what they what they are. And so, you know, the, the primitive biblical language that Jesus used, I'm okay with. Whether I believe in literal demons, I don't know, literal spirits, but I do believe that the disturbances in the psyche can be so deep and so profound. Um, and I have experienced uh, very powerful and almost instant healing on a number of occasions from things. So fast forward to when I came out 30-something years later after falling into church. Uh, I'd, I'd kind of come out to myself and come out to friends and family that I was trans. So I was processing um, and I was still suffering um, suicidal ideation. I was still tormented and oppressed. Um, I was 55 years old and I'd been suffering from suicidal ideation, I would say, for 50 years. I've all, I'd always wanted to kill myself to end this life, to find a way out. And um, when I came out, I was I was overcome with grief, grief that 
it felt like my life was over. I'm 62 now. And I thought it's too late. It's too late to transition. I, I can't afford to transition privately. Um, our national health service is broken and it will probably take me seven years to even begin the process, which time I'm 70. So anyway, I was filled with grief for a life I'd never lived. Uh, I'd never been able to transition. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, I want some photos to remember myself, the woman I could have been, should have been, might have been, um, that when I'm this old person, this old man sitting in a rocking chair in an old people's home, then I can look at my photos and I have some happy memories. So I, I went to actually went to a transgender, transgender dressing service, uh, sort of, I suppose you'd call them life coaches in a way. They teach, you know, when you come out at 50 and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, makeup skills, your knowledge of hair products and fashion and clothes is non-existent. So I went to this dressing service, this lovely lady, um, and as I was driving down, I felt like Jonah in the belly of the whale. I felt like I'd run as far away from God as you possibly could. You know, I I was I was under God's wrath. I was under God's judgment um, and very nervously knocked on the door. And everything in me wanted to run away because I felt like this was total shame. You know, it was here I was a grade one alpha male to all my friends. I'm, you know, in the building industry. I'm a top cyclist. Um, and everybody only knows me as a as a male, and here I am. Um, so Kerry does my makeup, does my hair, and I go into the changing room, put my dress on, and when I come out and look in the mirror, and Kerry says, "I'll get my camera and I'll take some photos for you." And I can only uh, describe that I was washed in liquid love it was pure liquid love it was like heaven come down um it was an incredible incredible feeling and my inner awareness my inner awareness of god or of how i think god can speak to us i felt god was saying chrissy i love you just as you are and that broke me even further. And I just crumpled up to the floor and started to weep with the knowledge of God's love. So my reconciling my faith with my trans identity was primarily an experience, very profound experience of encountering God, encountering God's love. And God saying, Chrissy, I love you just as you are. Um, I don't think God had ever spoken to me my name before. He'd never called me by my male name. So to be spoken to by name was precious. Now, maybe that's just in my imagination or my understanding of God, but for me it was real. So that left me with a huge problem because I think our theology is is constructed of two things. It's constructed of our experience on the one hand and our understanding on the other. So all of a sudden my experience told me that God loved me, but my understanding, my understanding of the Bible – uh, and what the church was telling me all my life was that I was in deep, deep sin and under judgment. So I had to reconcile my experience with my understanding. Um, and that led me to pick up the Bible. I hadn't read the Bible for years because I just felt condemned by it and the church. 
Um, and exactly the same as when I first heard the word transgender and I knew it was me. I didn't know what transgender meant, but I knew that somehow it described me. Um, you know, it's Laverne Cox on the cover of Time 2014, uh, Caitlin Jenner uh, in the UK, um, Frank Malone transitioned to become Kelly Malone, famous boxing promoter. So all of a sudden, the word transgender was trending. It was everywhere. And I had a real problem. I couldn't deny anymore um, who I was. I just knew I was trans and it described me. Um, and in the same way, I'd come across <clears throat> Christians who were talking about eunuchs. And as soon as I heard the word eunuch, something in me related. It resonated. And I thought, they hold the answer to my relationship with God and my understanding. And so I, I started to dig and dig and dig in scripture, in the Bible. And I just fell in love with the story of the eunuchs through scripture because it's just the most incredible, beautiful um, story um, over hundreds of years. Um, and so then my understanding fell in line with my experience. Sorry, that was a long talk. I love, no, I love it. I when you describe that moment of God talking to you as you were seeing yourself, really, you know, in that moment, um, I got goosebumps, Chrissy, because I feel like that is such a beautiful moment, right? To be recognized not just by yourself, by, but by this loving God. And, you know, I was brought up Catholic and I definitely had my own journey in terms of reconciling um, my faith with my identity and, and while I partially walked away from Christianity, I did truly feel that God loved me, even though the Catholic theology does not recognize that. And so I, I resonated with a lot of what you said, and I really loved how you expressed it. And now you found your your way to this beautiful story of the eunuch in the Bible. So no, wasn't wasn't too long of an answer. I think it was a beautiful answer. Well, and. Yeah. What fascinates me here is that within Christianity, all the the anti-trans Christian books and all the anti-trans Christian rhetoric, no one can explain to me the power of what happened to me because in discovering that God loves me just as I am, trans, 50 years of suicidal ideation stopped and I haven't suffered suicidal ideation in seven years. The shame, the guilt, the self-hatred, um, the oppression, the torment, the suicidal ideation, it's all gone. It's gone. In seven years, I haven't had anything. Um, and that is the fruit. That's the result of the encounter. Um, and that leads me to believe that it's um, real. Um, it's the most real deliverance. It's the most real healing I've ever experienced. And it didn't happen in a church. It happened in a transgender dressing service. <laughs> And I feel that that makes sense. I don't know. That makes sense to me, right? There's so much in the gospel about how, you know, sometimes the experiences of God don't always happen in a temple, right? And that's a beautiful illustration. <laughs> well, another powerful thing that you talk about in your memoir is something that so many trans people are afraid of, especially when we come out later in life, which is telling a spouse what's going on. 
And I thought that when you start talking about this letter that you wrote to Pam, your wife, it was so beautiful. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit to the listeners about, you know, what was your experience? I know it can be such a scary, I would say, experience for so many of us to disclose to a spouse how we're feeling about our gender. Yeah, so 2014, I really, sometime over that um, summer, I came out to myself, to a few friends, and I started meeting other trans women at meetings um, to hear their stories, to to try and understand myself. Um, and I, the guilt and the pain um, that I suffered at deceiving Pam or not being honest with Pam, with my family, and even with friends, just uh, it was eating me from inside. Um, all my life I've, I've committed to being transparent, um, honest, vulnerable, um, and I'd yet never been able to, um, but it was a principle for me of always trying to be honest. And so I knew that I had to tell Pam, but at the same time, I thought I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose my children. I'm going to lose my home. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my community. I'm going to lose everything. And it was with that fear that I wrote the letter, um, it took me 24 hours, almost nonstop, to write the letter. I stopped for a couple of cups of coffee, something to eat. But I basically wrote for 24 hours solid and poured my heart out um, and tried to explain um, the who and why of where I was and why I was and that I couldn't go any further in life because I had been trying to kill myself. Um, and I didn't want to hurt my family anymore. And I thought the only thing I can do is be honest now. So I gave the le- I came home from a job I was doing and I gave the letter to Pam and we sat and read it together, holding hands. And um, my wife has stood by me, loved me, um, supported me, cried with me, wept with me, been angry with me, um, and she's gone through incredible grief at losing her hairy man, her husband. Um, and I think the other thing is that as a conservative Christian, as I have come out from shame and walked away from shame and I'm free of shame, she has come under shame and has felt the judgment of church, the judgment of society, uh, has lived in fear and, 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 and shame. Um, and grief, and I think it's tragic that the you know after thirty years of serving church, almost none of her Christian friends have actually followed her up to see how she is, um, which I find a damning indictment upon what we call church and Christian fellowship. She has one or two friends who have been faithful and and check up on her, but yeah. It's heartbreaking. Um, that that is heartbreaking, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But here you are, like you have this beautiful relationship with your wife, and like you said, you've gone through a lot, but you know you're still together. You have your family, you have your children, um, and I think that's a story we don't often hear about. We hear about all the breakups and the divorces and especially for trans women, you know, the losing of children or grandchildren and all of that. But there, there is a happy ending for you. And I just wonder 
where are you at in your marriage now and how have you found maybe a new fellowship, um, you know, coming out of that kind of more conservative Christian background? Um, yeah, I think, you know, as Pam said, you know, if I'd have had an accident and been paralyzed and lost the use of my lower body, you know, um, she would have stuck with me. Um, and this is, I guess, a disaster for her, <laughs> you know, in that she's lost her husband. But in the same way, she's decided to stick with me. Not that I'm paralyzed or crippled. Um, far from it. I feel liberated and and free. But so our marriage has kind of transcended norms. Um, and I think we enjoy a richer friendship, a deeper love than we ever had before. Um, the boundaries have changed. Pam is not a lesbian. She doesn't, she's conservative. She's heterosexual through and through. She likes hairy men, and nice bumps. Um, so no, it's in that sense, we've, we've experienced the death in our physical relationship, but then many couples do. Um, yeah. Um, but the other thing is I've, I've got an increasing number of trans friends who, have kept their marriages, kept their jobs, kept their families. Um, and I, it's, a it's really encouraging because Christians particularly, I spoke to somebody on, in Sunday on church and they said, oh, what's happened to your wife when they realised I'd come out? Almost as if it was assumed at a default position that we would have separated. Mm. Um, and when I said, no, we're, we're still very much in love, um, she looked more shocked than she did when I said I was come out strong <laughs> mm -hmm. well and, and i love the the sanctity of your marriage i would say really transcended this this change right because as pam said there can be so many changes that happen to you know that's the difference between a wedding and a marriage right we marry a person and then if that relationship is long term we change through life and and even though this was a hard change Pam really recognized that and kind of you found a way of kind of nurturing your love, kind of that, you know, that wasn't just kind of romantic or sexual love, because there's so much more that makes a marriage, I think. And I think that that's a beautiful illustration that you have of this. I think friendship is, I think our culture today practices disposable friendships. And I'm horrified that the churches I've belonged to seem to particularly practice disposable friendships. So if you're in their club, great, you, we love you. Um, but the moment, moment you no longer blacken their doors, you're forgotten. Um, and mm -hmm. I find that tragic. You can spend 20 years building relationship with people. You leave their club and that's it, relationship over. Um, you know, I think Pam and I have both experienced people that we thought were really good, close friends. Um and they just seem to do this disposable throwaway friendship thing. Um, so in our marriage, I think the deepest thing that we have and we model is a friendship, you know, and it's not for us, it's not a throwaway, it's not a disposable. Um, it's rich, it's rewarding, it's painful. And it's, you know, we do the nitty gritty. We, we don't argue like hell, but, you know, we do conflict. We, we grieve, we, we get mad with each other. Um, but we choose to to love one another and serve one another as best we can. 
I, I think that's a beautiful description of kind of a, a marriage, honestly. I think that if we don't know how to do conflict, it's hard to stay in long-term relationships, whatever those relationships are. Well, I I feel like I could talk with you for so long, but I also want to be respectful of your time. I mean, one, one more question, though, that I want to ask is, what made you write a book? Because in a way, so many of the experiences you describe in your book are so deeply personal, and you do such an amazing job of really taking the reader with you in this really deeply personal, rich inner world of yours. And so what motivated you to want to write this book? Yeah, I think um, having been through puberty and childhood and suffered from gender dysphoria and dysmorphia to such a crippling degree that I was suicidal and tried to take my own life regularly as a pubescent kid, um, and realising how judged uh, trans people are and how the church judges trans people. So I wanted to write a book to try and explain, um, to try and get people to relate, to come on board, and to see us as no different from them, to see us as human. So I wrote the book I had to be totally honest and authentic all the way through. Um, people would either love or hate me. Because I wrote the book for two groups of people. I wrote it as a love letter to the trans community, really, to say, look, we can come through this. No matter what hell you've been through, um, you can come through. So it was just a message of hope for the trans community that no matter how messed up, how broken you feel, that actually there are there is a way through that love does win, always wins. Um, but then I wrote it to the conservative evangelical church to say, <clears throat> you need to understand us before you judge us. Please, would you take time out and read this book? And would you rethink your judgments? And I hope that, um, you know, the conservative church can learn from my book, um, maybe to listen. Um, it's a bridge building exercise. And then I wrote it for my friends. <clears throat> you know, I just, a lot of people, have, you know, what on earth has happened to you? Um, so it was it was a way of explanation, really. So, yeah, that was the motivation. <clears throat> you know, I wrote the book for the nine-year-old kid that I was to try and save them going through hell. <clears throat> you know, 40 to 45% of trans people attempt suicide, Um and many trans youth take their own lives. Um, you know, I've mentioned one or two in the book. And when I realised that and experienced that, that ripped my heart wide open. Um, and I thought the church needs to know that they are causing the shame, they are causing the judgment, they are causing the transphobia, um, and they need to be held accountable. Um, you know, the beautiful thing is I, I don't call myself a Christian and I don't want to be called a Christian. Um, I don't have any time for Christianity, the religion, the industry, you know, the pie in the sky sales market. Mm. But I love Jesus and I, you know, I've given my whole life to Jesus. Um, and the, what I, the most beautiful thing I see about Jesus in the Gospels and in the, in the Bible is that everywhere he went, he broke shame from people's lives, whether it was the mm -hmm. sex worker whether it was the tax collector, the leper, 
um, you know, the unclean woman uh, with the issue of blood, people that you couldn't touch, he embraced. Um, so he broke shame off pe in people's off people's lives. Um, and what I see is the church loading shame on people's lives, crippling people with shame because of mm -hmm. their judgments and their opinions. And they are only opinions. They can't prove them as they can't prove their their theories and their opinions as being absolute truth. Um, their theories and to judge and condemn somebody for a theory and an opinion is callous beyond extreme. So, yeah, I see Jesus breaking shame off of people and I see the church laying shame on people. I do have some beautiful Christian friends, some ministers, priests, who are doing everything they possibly can to break shame from people's lives, who are affirming of trans people. Um, and, you know, I will, I will back them, serve them, love them, respect them with everything I've got. Um, so, yeah, I very mixed emotions. <laughs> <laughs> that that's understandable and and I, I hear that one of the first people a long time ago to tell me that I just needed to go live my life and be myself was a, a vicar you know which uh, really horrified my mother I was like you mean like a Christian like person and uh, you know a man of God told you this and I said yes mom he looked in my eyes and said the church is not ready but you need to be yourself to be well, you know, and I'm, I have so much gratitude for Father James, you know, for Wonderful. telling me that so such a long time ago. And so I, there are beautiful people and also the church needs to be accountable for putting this shame on, on trans people and especially children and young people. Um, is there anything that you want to say to like, a child who's struggling or maybe a parent who's struggling to accept their child because of their Christian faith or anything that you want them to really know or understand. That you're loved just as you are. Um, a child's gender, sexuality, um, you know, if there is a God and if God judges for us for anything, He judges us not for our gender or our sexuality. He judges us for the attitude of our hearts. I see, I see faith as a, as a heart religion, a purity of heart, to having a heart of love. Um, and when you have a heart of love, you can't, it's hard for darkness. It's hard for meanness and ugliness to dwell there. And I think if we understood God as love, then we wouldn't suffer like we do. Um, and so, You know, parents of trans kids and, and trans children, if you are trans, then know that God is love and you are loved just as you are. And accepting yourself and loving yourself is, is your life's biggest task. Um, Self-love and being kind to yourself. And it starts with you. Um, but you have to junk the ideas of God as some vindictive, wrathful, vengeful, judgmental old man in the sky because that's, that is just religious hokum pokum. I love that. What a beautiful message. Oh, so one question I always ask at the end of my interviews is if there is anything that you and I haven't talked about so far that you were really hoping to talk about, 
And, and if we covered everything, that's good too. But I always want to give an opportunity to my guests to address anything that I might have missed. Yeah, I, and I think it's very easy for us all in the conflict um, that, you know, that since 2014, since, since that kind of, the trans, since the transgender phenomenon broke um, yeah. big time, the backlash from conservatives has been really ugly, really nasty. Uh, in the same way that it was against gay people in the 70s and 80s, you know, all, all the, the the evil, you know, AIDS is God's judgment on me, you know, the vileness of the judgment that we are under as a trans community. So we get locked in conflict, and I think we as a community are traumatised, and I think we as individuals are traumatised by daily judgment spoken over us by opinionated people who know very little. They're frantically trying to find out about trans and they're pumping out their first thoughts without really having spent any time with the trans community to see the reality, see our lived reality. Mm-hmm. So I think what I want to say is that we, we need to move beyond the conflict to celebrate who we are. And I think perhaps my closing message, and it's one I don't get across in the book enough, the book's very much unfinished business, is that I am fulfilled and happy for the first time in my life in a deep, deep sense. When I see my trans friends who are transitioning and have transitioned, I see them flourishing and flowering into incredible people of real beauty and sensitivity. And they don't show an ounce of the ugliness that I see within many Christians. They are far more gracious, they're far more sensitive, far more thoughtful, far more measured. Um, and so I see this beauty in being trans. Um, and I think most of my trans friends are the most sensitive people I know, the most gracious people I know. Um, and so I'd say being trans is, is absolutely beautiful. Yes, it comes with pain and suffering, but it's one of the most beautiful things that could have ever happened to me because it's made me... Um, it's made me made me more aware of what love is and what loving other people about and people who are other, people who are not like me. Um, so it, if you like, it's broken me, but it's broken me in a beautiful way. Um, so, yeah, I want to say being trans is, is something beautiful. It's a gift. Um, and I go as far to say as I think that's it's a, a gift from God. Um, you know, it's, it's Oh, what a <laughs> what a beautiful message, you know, being trans is beautiful. And I, I would agree it is a gift from the divine, a gift from God, absolutely. Well, what a beautiful message to end on. Thank you so much, Chrissy, Hello. for coming on to the show today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> me. And then oh. oh, this was so delightful. Go and buy the book. <laughs> oh yes. I was going to say, uh, thank you for reminding me. We, we need to, we su- all survive under capitalism. Please, dear listeners, do buy the book. It's called Heaven Come Down, The Story of a Transgender Disciple by Chrissy Shavasut. And it, it's really good. I really loved reading this book, Chrissy. So buy the book, buy a book for friends, maybe for family members who are having a hard time reconciling their Christianity with accepting um, trans folks. This would be a perfect gift uh, for those relatives. 
And uh, yes, buy the book, read the book. And thank you so much, Chrissy, once more. Mm-hmm. I will also put a link on the little episode description so you can find it easily. And thank you again, Chrissy, for coming on to Gender Stories today. Bye. All right, dear listeners, until next time, keep loving yourself and being kind to yourself. And I'll see you soon for a new episode. Thank you.